Welcome to Government Enabled, a podcast created to explore some of the biggest workforce challenges faced by federal and state agencies today. In each episode, we'll feature insights from industry experts who are helping the government improve their workforce operations and make better data-driven decisions. Join us as we explore federal subject matter expertise and innovative technology in supporting the mission of government agencies. Let's get started. Hi, and welcome to Government Enabled, sponsored by Economic Systems. EconSys is a management consulting, HR services and products company, and sole provider of FedHR Navigator software to the federal government. I'm Linda Sue Kirshner, your host. I'm happy to introduce today's guest, Mr. Don Bauer, Chief Technology Officer, Office of Technology Services, Global Talent Management, Executive Office at the U.S. Department of State. That's a mouthful. Welcome, Don. Thank you. Thank you. I'm sorry, we're out of time. No. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't pick the title, okay? I'm, <laughs> I'm sure that doesn't all fit on a business card. So tell us a little bit about how you wound up at the Department of State in your position and actually how you got into this particular line of business and tell us a little bit about your line of business. As far as the Department of State, I was actually working as a program manager for EconSys at NPPD, which is now CISA. And we were doing a enterprise implementation for HR workflow software. And a retired executive from the State Department was one of the contractors over there. And we did a lot of work with the customer on process mapping, process engineering, just doing simulations on how to do workflows and hiring processes. And she looked at me and she goes, the State Department could really use somebody like you. And I was Mm -hmm. like, who me? You know, the who me? And she says, do you mind if I pass your name along to somebody over at the State Department? I'm like, sure, why not? At that point, I was reinstatement eligible. So it was one of those things where, yeah, if given the right opportunity. So I did a couple interviews and they checked all of my credentials out and I got my security clearance. And of course, I started working there in 2016. So it's been a real interesting experience. State Department's a very unique culture and really great place to work. And as far as getting into the business, for those that may not be aware, I was one of the co-founders of Quick Hire, which was one of the first commercially available staffing products for the federal government back in 99, 2000. We were doing software as a service before it was a thing. Of course, we would have probably been called a cloud provider nowadays, given Mm -hmm. the way the industry has stolen that term. But I was working doing satellite automation software for NASA, doing my dream job. And this guy, friend of a friend, we had lunch. He goes, hey, I need their help, some help writing some software for the National Park Service to help do their seasonal hires. And at the time, National Park Service was doing this very labor-intensive 14-page Scantron form for every applicant. You would have to fill out 14 pages. And then you would send that in. And then sometimes you wouldn't hear anything. And other times you might get a job offer. And it was a real painful process. And they did this every year. Didn't matter if you'd worked for the National Park Service the year before. There's They call them seasonal or temporary employees. So we put that entire process online and the Park Service, this is back in 1999, 98, actually 98, 99, Park Service says, we don't think this internet thing is going to pan out. (laughs) And then the internet was going to take off? No, they said highly unlikely (laughs) know how to use the internet to apply for a job. And we're like, well, let's give it a try. And we put it out there. And so I was working my day job at this company called AI Solutions in Lanham working for NASA. And then in the evenings, I'd be working on the software and doing user support. 
And one of my first customers was a 55-year-old retired railroad worker who said, this internet thing is great. He says, I have a 14-page form. And I was helping him navigate. And of course, that feedback was, I was the developer and help desk and everything at the time. That gave me that insight is, oh, this user experience and how to fix the software. So that kind of got some legs. We did a full season with National Park Service. 75% of the applicants applied online, which was unprecedented at the time, which gave us a little bit of uh, confidence to go out to the rest of the federal Mm -hmm. job and say, hey, you guys want to do this? And of course, we did a little conference at some Ramada Inn in Arlington and it was like eight vendors. We weren't even a company back then, guys, who had a table and a computer and that was it. And this lady from Geological Service came by and she goes, you know, this would be perfect for KSAs and hiring. And we're like, please tell us more. And she did. And long story short, after about three or four demos and a couple of conversations with a 15 over at Geological Survey, we ended up with a contract to develop a hiring system for USGS, which ultimately became our product. And in the experience of writing software for the federal government, this was back before the whole security assessment was a big deal. And the only people doing this was USA Jobs at the time was an email-based job board. It was very rudimentary. And so by developing this tool to do hiring for the government, we basically, my entire team learned HR. We became pretty good at understanding how Title V hiring gets done because we were writing software to support it. And that monster bought us in 2003 when they won the USA Jobs contract. And they said, we want the number one provider. And at the time we were number one. After Mm -hmm. a short four years in the industry, we took over the market. We had a 55% market share in federal hiring. About 70 federal agencies were using Quick Hire. And monster bought us and immediately renamed it to something very generic because Quick Hire apparently didn't their brand very well. And uh, I think it's monster government solution. Very very simple. And they renamed the product hiring management. That was real (laughs) simple. Whatever. So I stuck with Monster for a few years, primarily due to my contractual obligations and the payout that they were giving us. And once my payout earnout was done in 2006, I quote unquote retired and immediately was contacted by one of my former customers to become a Fed and start working with HRIT in the federal government. That was in 2006. And so it was started out as my hobby, job, profession, full-time job, and now profession for the last 20 years. And I've been doing HRIT since basically 1999. Having worked in both the public and the private sector during your career, what would you say is the most significant difference between the two as it relates to HR and system implementation? I think the biggest challenge that I've faced professionally doing HRIT is the culture of HR itself. And this has nothing to do with the people. It has to do with the language of communication. If you're with a private sector person and you talk government and all you start throwing around all these acronyms, (laughs) the non-government people are like, what are you talking about? You just said alphabet soup in three sentences. You listed like 20 acronyms. Well, similarly, HR has its own language too, and it may not be full of acronyms, but it is about the process and how complicated and sophisticated the government hiring rules are. It's interesting. You would think, I don't know how many times and how many presidents have said, we're going to simplify the hiring process. All you need to do is submit a resume. And they just don't understand that the Title V rules and regulations, the CFR is probably as thick as the War and Peace book. Yes, I was going to say, I was going to say a couple of inches thick. Yeah. 
And there are rules in there for just about everything. And if you don't know them, then you will surely find out about them when the lawsuits fly in or somebody gets feels disadvantaged. And then you have veterans preference and you have all of these different things that apply within civil service hiring. So that has been the biggest challenge from an HR perspective is you got to follow the rules. And the frustration typically, and this is universal, is IT doesn't speak HR and mm -hmm. HR doesn't speak IT. So then the HR never gets a system they can use. And the IT folks are always complaining, oh, they just don't get it. And in reality, once you learn the culture and you know how to communicate with HR, they're very astute and know their jobs very well. They just don't speak tech. And that was something I've learned early on. And that's been my kind of, that's my sweet spot is that I can listen to the HR folks and I can communicate to the techies and tell them how to do it. And that usually results in something that the HR folks can at least understand, which then gives you more feedback to make a better user experience because most HR systems are just horrible to use. There's the whole security issue that is on top of the IT versus HR issue. So you now have a third component coming into this to try and make everything work. And that becomes even more difficult, I would think. It is, but interesting you bring that up because this whole COVID thing, game changer for security for organizations, where now you used to go in in your little office and just be sitting inside your little bubble and do your mm -hmm. job. Now, magically, IT departments are now being required to go to cloud or provide remote access. So now cybersecurity is everybody's concern. So I think there's a convergence to some degree, like you're pointing out, that right. new way of looking at things, that convergence is now happening in that cyber world because now it's everybody's concern. It used to be the government was like, I saw a metric one time, the State Department defends a half a million attacks a day. A day. Oh my goodness. Because That's we're, incredible. We have a global network. We have, we're mm -hmm. in 278 locations worldwide. We have our domestic offices. We have all of our passport offices, mm -hmm. all the passport work we do. Between all of that combined is a half a million attempts. And of course, we've got security in place, but it's just when you see those numbers, that similarly is now happening to the rank and file businesses, right? And it's typically the ransomware. That's where they get you. They yeah, turn absolutely. their way to your network and then they say, okay, we'll pay us or we're going to wipe out all your data. And that mm -hmm. means something to everyone. That's not unique to the federal government or, or else. So it's interesting how that's happened. With that said, how, in your opinion, does the State Department compare with the private sector when it comes to embracing new technologies? I mean, we talked a little bit about security, but what about other types of new technologies? Well, that's interesting. The State Department, we're a hybrid agency. We have a foot in the intelligence world and we do, we're a normal executive branch office we serve multiple missions. So the sensitivity to go online, State Department was one of the last federal agencies to really embrace technology in general, the internet. I think the word I heard was they didn't have internet on their desktops until Colin Powell was Secretary of State, which that's pretty recent. That's, recent. that's, yeah, that's not that long ago. Colin Powell was not that long ago. And so it's interesting to say it's not catching up it is more of the embracing the new technology. You know what I'm saying? In other words, they were intentionally not on the internet. It's not like they didn't know how. And you hear these, and I don't want to go political, but you hear about the whole email scandal and everything that's going on. Well, a lot of that had to do with the existing technology external to the department that people needed. Secretaries of states need to send emails to outside entities. So this isn't a total disregard. This is more of just, you need to do a job and you have to use the tools you have. Now, in the last, I've been at State Department over a little over four years. In the last four years, they have made leaps and bounds, I think, out of necessity more than anything else. 
And then COVID just put a huge shot in the behind to say, oh, you need to get going fast. Mm -hmm. We scrambled. Traditional telework at the State Department was very limited. There were some, but we didn't have like DHS was pretty much people had core telework hours and things like that when I worked there. And State Department, no. So it was more situational. I have to work from home. Contractors coming. Can I work from home? But limited functionality and limited use. We went from that to 100% telework in six weeks, which was quite a challenge. That is quite a challenge, especially when you're talking about an IT perspective and a security perspective. Right. And it's also infrastructure. When you're not sitting there, some of these organizations have these huge server farms that can handle remote users. We didn't have that. We can handle maybe five, 10,000 people at most out of 60 or 70,000. It was a huge scramble. And fortunate for us, our new CIO, Stuart McGuigan, used to work for J&J. He came on a couple of years ago. So he brought a different kind of perspective to addressing a global operation from a technology perspective, which is, I think, it invigorated our adoption of new technologies. And it gave us perspective on it. And of course, for those that aren't aware, the new administration created the position of chief data officer. So now that's a big deal now. And all the federal agencies are supposed to be what they call a CDO, chief data officer, to help manage data and analytics. So all of that kind of has lent itself well from a modernization perspective. Interesting. So generally speaking, what do you think has been the biggest change within the technology arena across government over the past five years? Would you say it's been the most recent, which is having to deal with COVID or something else? Well, I think cloud is probably a better thing to describe with respect to challenges in the federal government. Like I said, we did software as a service back in 2000 before in Citrix. And of course, some of that technology now still exists and it's morphed and it's modernized. But cloud has really changed the face of government. And here's the interesting aspect of that, because back in the early 2000s, you were online, but you had to buy your own hardware and then you handed it off to the data center and the data center would take your hardware, install it, and then you owned your server and then you could put your software on it and you had to follow the rules, but it was yours. Mm-hmm. And then at some point, the data centers got full because everybody's online and they're right. like, we don't have any more outlets. They literally ran out of power outlets to plug things into and physically put hardware. And then that whole virtualized world showed up, right? Virtualization where you have this virtual server. I remember at CBP back in late 2000, 2008, they did a utilization survey of all the servers. Everybody had purchased a server for their stuff. The utilization rate for servers was 10%. So these servers are sitting in this data center, but only being 10% utilized because they had to buy their own physical server to have their own stuff. Mm -hmm. Now they went to this virtualized environment and now it's, you know, size to meet demand. Well, take that to the next step, which is, well, we're tired of buying servers and buying storage units and paying all these contractors to physically manage our boxes. Now we go to cloud and cloud's like, no worries. You don't have to do a hardware refresh because that's handled for you. That's built in. You don't have to do a storage refresh or anything like that. But that forced you to go to a consumption-based model. The government has never been good at consumption-based pricing because we do our budgets in advance. Consumption-based pricing is, well, it's your electric company. Well, your electric bill is 600 bucks this month because you use twice as much as you normally do. The Mm -hmm. government's like, how do I handle that? Because you said you're going to spend this much money this year. And so the adaption is the consumption-based model. And I think the bigger thing about all that is everybody's, wow. I love this. We're going to hire a vendor. They're going to provide us our infrastructure, our servers. We just use them and then they buy the new ones and they replace them and all that. And they're like, this is great. We don't need to hire all these extra contractors to manage all the software. So they're thinking, wow, this is a great deal. 
And then the next thing you know, they get the first bill in the month. <laughs> no, oh, my goodness. <laughs> what do you mean $100,000 a month for this mm-hmm. service? They're like, we do everything for you. And so it's been a rude awakening to both not only consumption-based, but the actual, it's very expensive being in cloud. And then the other little dirty secret that the vendors don't tell you about cloud, because the oracles and Microsoft come to the cloud, we've got you covered. Mm-hmm. You're there, and you so you dump a terabyte of data up into the cloud because you're using it. And then you're like, this isn't such a good idea. We're going to go over to this other guy. And they're like, no problem. Unfortunately, if you want to take data out of the cloud, we're going to charge you by the byte. So you're going to have to pay us a couple hundred thousand dollars to get those terabytes of data out of the cloud because there's an exfiltration charge. And that was a rude awakening that's, oh, so if you're doing a hybrid model, which most organizations are, in other words, we're not 100% confident that we can put everything we have in the cloud because some of it's still just too darn sensitive to even risk it being exposed. Even take a risk, right. We have this back and forth of data. Well, you can put it in the cloud for free, taking it out. Oh, that's going to cost you a few bucks. So there's another consumption-based charge that if you sign this agreement to have this express route, this dedicated connection, which those things are freaking expensive, the high-speed pipes, you pay that extra money. We won't charge you to take your data out. Now I just incurred a new consumption-based cost. Well, it may be fixed. But it's a big cost. So I don't have to pay the buy the bite payment. So yeah, it's been quite a rude awakening. I managed the budget for my IT department. And when I had to go in front of OMB and go, yes, I want to double my budget. And they're like, what do you mean double your budget? (laughs) Well, I have to keep what I have going while I start this new thing called cloud. Right. And they're like, when are we going to save any money? And I was like, if you run the model year nine, and the only way I'm going to do that is by reducing staff because the labor component was the only thing that I had any control over because the cloud costs are what they are. And I still have the same population I have to serve. I don't get the luxury of picking and choosing who I serve with my HR. It's the whole department. So by the time it was all done, I was like, yeah, I got to double my budget for at least three to four years to modernize, to get transitioned to this new way of doing business. Then I have to have another year or two to ramp down of the old and retire it or decommission it. And then at some point when I'm in steady state in cloud, then I will basically reduce my footprint of technology professionals because I need less people to manage it. But the other dirty little secret they don't tell you about cloud is I can get my normal engineers now at 150 an hour. My cloud resources are coming in at 250 to 300 or above an hour. So while I might drop 10 people, it only basically helps me for six, six cloud. It's a six for 10 kind of deal. So I might reduce it by three or four. I don't get that same one for one reduction in cost because the new cloud resources cost more money. So you've been at the State Department now for a little bit over four years, I believe. Do you feel you've had or been able to have a positive effect during that time? Are things in a better place based on some of the changes, even though there may be a cost to all of that? It would be silly of me to say no. I mean, this is a podcast, but I don't know. Yes, I have. And from my perspective... It's all right. It's all about you today, Don. It's okay. (laughs) No, I think... My focus, quick hire success was really our customer service. We were really on top of it. Quality, software, customer service. And that's the culture that I've tried to embody at the State Department on HRIT is when I took over, I felt like customer service could be better. 
So that was an area that I chose to help improve our organization on. And some of our processes needed to be modernized and some of our technology needed modernized. So yes, I think we're in a much better place. I think they realized that they had been trying to modernize for years and hadn't had any success. And finally, two years ago, I got in front of OMB and said, I'm sorry, but the sky is falling. Our <laughs> systems are end of life. You've denied us money for four or five years. Now we don't have a choice. And we got our money. We got our budget. It had to get to an extreme. So now we're playing catch up. But we focus on customer service and we're very, very try to be as responsive as we can. All my bosses are foreign service officers and they've been in these Baghdads and Afghanistan posts where you're looking over your shoulder every time you hear a loud noise. And when it's explained to you in the sense that when I go to do HR stuff, take care of my wife or change an allotment or whatever I need to do, I need things that work. I don't need the stress of worrying if my paycheck's going to be right and all right. the things that go with it. So it was a real, he said, I just want it to work. That was a kind of a profound statement that just basically says, this stuff should be intuitive, easy to use. It shouldn't be buggy. And I took that to heart and that's the focus. And that's kind of where we're at with our mission is really making our software as easy to use and as reliable as possible. Because when you're in the field, it's not your primary mission and you don't right. need to be distracted by it. There are a lot of other more important things that need to be taken care of when you're out in the field. <laughs> Absolutely. So since we are talking about you today, Don, what do you think is the smartest thing you've ever done to affect change and minimize risk? Wow. I guess I would have to say is really embracing the security mindset that you need. HR is notorious for going out and buying something and going, oh, security? Why is that a thing? Not that they necessarily don't care about security, but I guess you may get a little desensitized to the whole personal information thing when you deal with it every single day. And so you may not necessarily give the same kind of attention to, is it, does it have a security assessment? Is it fed ramped and all those others? So one of the things that I have done professionally as having been an SO is an information system security officer for a system you got to bring the security folks to the table at the front end of an engagement, not after you've already signed the contract. Mm -hmm. So I've really worked hard that when you are potentially looking at a new product or a new tool, you always invite security to the meetings so they can ask their set of questions to the vendor and get the right answers that they need so that you don't necessarily think, oh, goody, we're getting this great new system. And then you tell them, sorry, we can't because they're owned by a foreign company and they don't have any security constraints in place that would allow us to put any of our data in there. And that has probably at least managed expectations better than most could for that very reason, because there's nothing worse than thinking you're going to get this new technology to solve a problem, only to find out that due to other constraints, you can't buy it. And by having the security folks at the front end of the process, you find that out much sooner and it's, it's just better for everybody all around. If they say the right words and the vendor, the security folks can look at you with a couple of thumbs up and go, yes, you can buy this because they're qualified. And with all these changes, it affects the people that work with you and the way that they are managed, I think, is something that's important. And I believe in a previous conversation, you had mentioned to me the importance of, from a management perspective, to empower those that work with you or work for you to help the process. Because for you to try and do everything yourself and not get the, if you want to say buy-in or support maybe is a better word from those underneath you, they need to feel like they are empowered to also help affect some change. Would you not agree? Yeah. Well, I think we've all experienced the micromanager bosses. We've experienced the situations where the boss makes it very clear that they're the smartest person in the room. So there's a lot of these different situations we all deal with. 
And that's great when everything is right. But as soon as things go south, there's only one person to blame, which is yourself. And Mm -hmm. I've learned, especially the one thing that we have to really be aware of, I'm a computer science guy. It's my degree. And I am like heads down daily trying to keep up. So you really, in this kind of a world, you got to make sure that you bring all the smart people together and you make sure they all have a say in what you're doing because it's just too much for any one individual to know all the answers. And there's so many different angles that people can take nowadays. So yes. And the other thing which I believe in is you can't grow leaders if you basically tell them what to do all the time. You got to let people make decisions. You got to back them up. Sometimes they need to fail. It's okay. You got to have the kind of environment where people feel like they should be able to try something. And if it doesn't work out, they're not going to lose their job or whatever. And of course, there's always the right place and the right time to take a risk as far as this is a global evacuation system. Probably not a good idea to do a bunch of new R&D with it. But something more, a little less impactful would make a good idea. So yeah, I think definitely empowering your people to do, at least I let everybody in my organization, when we're dealing with a situation, everybody has a say, they can all speak. I'll still make the decision, but I usually like to make sure that I hear from all different angles to make sure that I am making the best decision. I think that's a very good way to do things. I think it makes for a better end product and it makes for a happier culture and environment where someone works, which kind of brings me to the fact that you had also mentioned in a previous conversation that the attrition rate within your organization at state is low and seems to be lower than average. Do you attribute what we were just talking about to that or there's something else that you might attribute to that? Well, I can't take all the credit, but it is definitely a culture thing. It's funny. I was having a conversation the other day with somebody and they said, people don't leave jobs, they leave bosses. But if you have a bad boss and left jobs myself because of my bosses, so I definitely can relate. But yeah, I think if you got to go to work every day, it shouldn't be this thing that you hate and despise and you just do because you're getting a paycheck. Many people are caught in that and it's because whatever the circumstances are. From our standpoint, I hired an agile coach who happens to be an executive coach. We pay really close attention to our culture in the organization, making sure that people feel empowered, making sure that they feel taken care of. We're very big on work-life balance. And IT folks are especially guilty of just putting in mega hours. And I can tell you, having written software myself, there is a tipping point at the end of the day where you might be working and may be motivated, but you introduce more errors than you can fix. So just have encouraging people to take a break and take time off. And when you're supporting a global operation, we do a lot of weekend work. So I'm really, really work hard to make sure our people, they get a good time, family first, always making sure people, I always tell all my new incoming folks that if you need to go to your daughter's recital or whatever, don't feel like you're going to lose your job because you're taking an afternoon to, to meet with your family. The other side of that though, also speaks to so many times organizations find themselves relying on a single individual beyond right. being healthy. So I encourage documenting our processes. I encourage SOPs. I encourage people to to have backups. Matter of fact, because of COVID, I, my most recent newsletter, I told the team, I was like, go find your leave buddy. You know, what's a leave buddy? A leave buddy is the person who's going to cover my responsibility so I can take time off and start now. Here we are in October. So mm-hmm. find your leave buddy and figure out the end of the year so you can take a couple weeks here and your work is covered and they can take a couple weeks here. I don't believe in that mandate of you can't take time off because you're too important. Because I can tell you the person could quit, they could win the lottery, or worse, they could end up with some kind of personal issue where they couldn't show up for work. What do you do? 
You you can't put that much dependency on a single individual. So those are areas where I think we've kind of created the culture where people can take time off. They feel valued. We do quarterly. We do like we call a science fair. We do a quarterly celebration, a team building event where Previously, we had done potlucks, and then we had also do like little projects where the teams get to show off what they've accomplished that quarter. And it's in a science fair format, the little trifold poster <laughs> on the wall. And then the director general has been to a couple and the deputy assistant secretaries, they come through and they look at the accomplishments of the team because there's a lot of work going on, a lot of moving parts. And it's just nice to take a minute or two and say, thanks. We appreciate it. I think that's a great doing. idea. And also to share things Believe it or not, we get so heads down even doing working together as because our organization is about 250 people. You may not know what other people have done because you've been so busy doing your own stuff. And then you're like, well, wait a minute, my customers can use that. So we've had a lot of happy kind of accidents mm-hmm. where they see that something's been done and like, that'll work for us. And we hired a UI UX specialist now. So we have some standardization on our experience and the state department's hired federal customer experience specialists now. So our HR bureau or GTM has four customer experience professionals now to help make sure that we are focusing on the right things when we're developing software and even business processes. It's not even technology related. It's just customer service and customer experience in general. So it's a really cool thing. Yeah. Yeah, that is really neat. And to your point, I remember I worked with this person who worked in a different area than I, and I saw him every day. And one day I had him participate in a conference call just for informational purposes. And I saw him in a little kitchen later and he said to me, he said, I want to thank you. He said, I've been here for X amount of time. I don't remember what it was. And I never knew what your team did. I only knew what my team did. And he said it was really helpful to just participate and learn. So even small, medium or large organizations can get caught up on that. So those little ideas and ways of having people interact with one another that might not on a daily basis know what the other is doing, I think is a great idea. It's led to some very interesting conversations and it's made us better as a team, right? It makes us better overall. It's not Mm -hmm. one or two people, but it's the whole organization, which that's the other part that I'm big on is just making sure that everybody can take some pride in the fact that we did it, we're doing it as a team. That's great. This has been really informative. Now it is fun fact time. (laughs) So tell us a fun fact about yourself, something that most people probably don't know. I used to race in the NASCAR Wheeling Series at Old Dominion. I raced for two seasons. It was a late model stock car. And I was rookie of the year, my first year driving. I finished in the top really? points. I got a little plaque in my garage that's rookie of the year. And yeah, I'm pretty proud of that. I think that would have been at like 43 or 45 years old. I'm rookie of the year at a, <laughs> a racetrack, racing stock cars. So that was a lot of fun. I really love racing and uh, it just got so darn expensive. I just couldn't afford to keep doing it without. Because if you notice, most people race with other people's money. That's what. Yes, that's true. We put the that's name true. on. We're sponsored by somebody or a bunch of somebody's. Yeah, I had, <laughs> I had a towing company for a while, so my towing company was on the side of the car, which didn't earn me any money, and very expensive sport. So you know, Old Dominion's closed now. It's now a housing development, and the owners of that track created a new racetrack down in Thornburg called Dominion Raceway, which is down there. It's Oh, yeah. That's the same owners of the Old Dominion Speedway, which was started in 1954. And the old NASCAR greats like Richard Petty and everybody came through here in the Grand National Mm -hmm. Series and raced at Old Dominion. It was a track on the NASCAR circuit. 
Really? Um, wow. Back in the day. Yeah. A lot of history there. And of course, as the area developed, they started building houses around it. Then the people started complaining about complaining the- about the noise and the crowds and everything else. It's only two days a week. So two days a week, they don't want you to do it. That's just the way it goes. And then my last interesting question for you, or I think it's interesting, is what is the one thing that you've always wanted to do or that's on your bucket list that you haven't done yet? Well, um, doing a lot of travel, made it to Hawaii in 2017, very happy because that was before the volcano wiped out the park. Uh, oh, yeah. So we got to see Gosh, that. that was so long ago. Yeah. And that was only 2017 that we were there. So yeah, Australia, New Zealand is on the bucket list. I want to go see the set of Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, all that stuff in New Zealand. I go there. Yep. And just go to Australia. That's been on my bucket list for a long time. So now with the whole traveling thing, can you imagine in COVID times being on a plane for 20 hours with everybody else? Well, I was supposed to actually go to Australia last month or the month before. My youngest son is studying marine biology. Oh, and so wow. he's That's been in Australia since the summer of 2019. And I was ready to go and have that 24-hour trip or what have you, and then all of a sudden COVID hit. So now he's in Australia and we're here. And fortunately or unfortunately, he's in a very safe situation because he's in Australia. I just can't get on an airplane to visit him. But maybe next year things will be different and I can get there and you can get there. Yeah, I have a grandson. He's three. We were working really hard with him. He turned three in March and we were potty training him and getting him so he could take the full advantage of the Oceaneers lab on a Disney cruise. And yeah, we had to cancel that. It was in March and then we moved it to September. And then, of course, who knew what was going to happen? And so we came from that too. So now we're looking at cruises in 2022. Right. So all of our bucket list list items have to go on the back burner, if you will. Yeah, I think the vaccine, there'll be a vaccine by then. I would hope so. Well, thank you so much. I want to wrap up now, let our listeners know that they can go to the Econsist company website at econsist.com to learn more about our technology and innovative ideas and go to the State Department website to find out more about Don Bauer's background and how he is helping to create positive change there and moving forward. Don, thanks so much for joining us on Government Enabled. You're very welcome. Thank you so much. Government Enabled is brought to you by EconSys, an organization that helps power federal and state governments with exceptional workforces. If you're a public sector leader looking to get the most out of your people, then subscribe to the Government Enabled podcast on all major platforms. And check out all archived episodes at econsys.com. Thanks for listening.